Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And you get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. So if you think this podcast is great, you're really going to think my classes are great. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll today, and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 451. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Don't forget to give me an email address while you're there. You get a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. And that's the way I keep in touch with you, so that email address is vital. All right, let's talk about the topic of the week, really, because I think that's what we're getting to. And this is a listener-generated episode. If you like this podcast, and you want to send me suggestions, go ahead and do it. I do read them, and I do talk about them. And this one is one of, one of those cases. So you've heard me talk a lot about the Yankee problem in America, and I'm not unique in that. There's others that have done that as well. But when we've talked about Karens, we've talked about the culture war, the real issue is Yankees. And this entire week is going to be dedicated to that problem the Yankee problem in America. And when I say Yankee, I'm not talking about Northerners. I'm talking about a particular mindset. And I know a lot of people in this program or who listen to this program are from the North or even around the world. I have listeners all over the world. So maybe you are you heard that term before, Yankee, and you're not sure what it means. It's not just somebody from the North. It's a mindset of cultural imperialism in many ways. I mean, that's what it gets to. And of course, that cultural imperialism will then manifest itself in political imperialism, economic imperialism. You see, that's the real issue in America. We have a particular type of American who believes that everyone has to do what they're doing at all times, or you can't do something that they don't like, or they're going to force you to do something they do like. This has been going on since the 17th century, when the Puritans landed on the shores of Massachusetts and, of course, they wanted everyone to be like them. This is the City Upon a Hill sermon. That's what that is really about. They wanted to be the shining city upon a hill, but they if you weren't that, and one of the nice examples about that, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the first book banning in America with the uh, town of Marymount, which is now Braintree, Massachusetts. If you're not like them, they're going to force you to be like them, or you're gone. It's an intolerant worldview. They set the standards for what they mean by tolerance. Now, they will profess to be tolerant within the confines of their own worldview. 
But once you're beyond that, you don't fit any longer and you have to be booted out or re-educated or whatever the case may be. This is the Yankee mindset. And they've done it for centuries. This is what this is the heart of the culture war and what this is all about. Now, the first piece this week, and I'm going to do some things this week that you might be surprised about. I'm going to talk about two pieces, one from the Claremont Institute, which I'm no fan of Claremont, though they do get some things right sometimes. And another from Michael Lind. Now, Michael Lind is a supreme Hamiltonian. He is a supreme Lincolnian Hamiltonian. But in this particular case, in this essay, he gets some things right. So I want to talk about it because I think that he does pinpoint the real problem in America, and it's Yankees. And it's amazing that he, that he says it. In fact, the title of the piece is The Revenge of the Yankees, How Social Gospel Became Social Justice. This is written in November of 2020, so it's a few months old, and a listener sent it to me, and I wasn't aware it was there, but it's fantastic. He gets a couple of things wrong here, which I'll talk about, but overall, this is a good piece, and I think he points out what the real issue in America is. We often, you know, you hear this, uh, we were in a race war, there's a racial divide, there's all these things happening, but in reality, what's going on is you have one section of white Americans who want to hold and maintain their power, and of course they bring in other groups because that gives them more power. So they appeal to minority groups as part of the downtrodden, disfranchised, whatever the case may be, whatever they think is going to appeal to them, the, the underrepresented groups in America. And they do this in a altruistic virtuous, look-at-me position. But in reality, what they're going after, and what Lynn points out here, it's all about power. And I've said this many times before. Look, if you want to get to the heart of what's going on in America, it's about power. It's about these people seeking power, and they lost it. The Trump phenomenon of 2016 was a real threat to their power. So that's why they're using all these other things to try to get back at it. And they they do it because they want to build a coalition that will keep and maintain power. Yankees. Is America disintegrating into anarchy and civil war among races, religions, and regions? Is the country more divided than ever before? The answer is no. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because I think if you look at it, he's going to go in through a long explanation here of how America is less divided than it's been at other points in American history. Well, I mean, you could say that it was very divided in the 1860s. However, Americans in 1860 had a lot in common north and south. In fact, uh, I mean, you could make a case, I mean, predominantly Christian. They generally had the same views on race, even on slavery, as Larry Tize has pointed out. It's just that northerners wanted it bottled up in the south, and the south wanted to expand it. That's what the real issue was when it came down to why slavery. That's it. So you had this, this debate, not over the morality of slavery, because most Americans didn't care. What they didn't want, though, particularly in the West, is slavery expanding into the West. So, And they didn't want it because they had the same views on race. They were racist as Southerners were. I mean, so Southerners were even in that way more interested in what we might call tolerance because they certainly lived around black Americans in greater numbers than anywhere else in the United States. Westerners didn't want them there. New Englanders, really, same case. I mean, so 
we have this very much homogenous America. America was very few immigrants. You had more of them flooding into the North by the 1860s than anywhere else. And of course, that xenophobia that we'll often see, you saw it in the North. These people were not interested in large numbers of immigrants there, at least certain segments of the, of the American population. Now, the Republican Party, this is interesting, the Republican Party, which the Claremontists will say, well, it was early on, they were trying to block uh, immigration. Well, not really. If you look at their first platforms, they were certainly on, on board with that. Large-scale immigration. So we have a generally similar society in 1860. Not the case now. When you look at the culture war now, I think that there is a real divide in America. You've got 50% of the American population that doesn't go to any type of church. You've got 50% of the population that does. You're really seeing a real urban split in America in terms of what people want out of government or what they expect out of society or what they think is normal or not normal. You're seeing this all over the place. The culture war is real. So I think he gets it wrong that America is not supremely divided today. It is. It's not politically divided like it was in the 1860s. You, you don't have as many people who are interested in, say, Jeffersonianism versus Hamiltonianism or this idea of loose construction, strict construction, which was a real issue. The economy, or we're going to have an agrarian economy. In the 1860s, virtually everybody was a farmer. Most people were still farmers. Nowadays, not the case. But we're seeing you know, how that's being manifested in different ways in the economy. But I digress. That's a point that I think that he's a little bit light on. And he gets another little thing wrong here. But I'm, I, overall, this piece is very good. The social and economic divides among white Northerners and white Southerners, blacks and whites, Catholics and Protestants and Jews, were much more intense in 1920 than they are today in 2020. White Northerners and white Southerners, maybe, were worse then. Though I'm not necessarily certain about that when it comes to certain types of white Northerners. Yankees. Right? Even in the 18, 1920, I should say, or 1860 or every one ago, white Southerners and white Northerners generally saw eye to eye if they were Jeffersonians. You know, you look at 1860, for example, which led to a great big war. If you put white Southerners and white Northerners together that voted against Abraham Lincoln, it's 60%, no, it's 60% of the population. 60%. 60%, actually over 60%. So 60% of the American population didn't like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. So there was a general unity. It's just they didn't know where to go in, in certain directions politically. But again, I, I think he, he overplays this a little bit. What has happened is that the formerly unified, mostly northern mainline Protestant American establishment has, perhaps temporarily, broken down, allowing the actual diversity of interests and opinions in the United States to be expressed rather than suppressed. If the emerging woke national establishment has its way, however, that diversity of viewpoints and values will soon be suppressed once again in favor of an intolerant and exclusive doctrine that greatly resembles the old-time social gospel from which it is derived. Now, this is interesting because what Lind is doing here is going back to the progressive era, and he's pointing out the social gospelers. He's, I mean, this was a supreme part of the progressive movement. It was the holier-than-thou, intolerant part of the progressive side. And what he means by that is these are the people that were for temperance 
eliminating all sin in America, and by sin they defined all kinds of things. And essentially that's what wokeism is all about. There's a sin in America, and that sin is, is uh, bigotry. And so they find bigotry in everything. It doesn't matter what you... You're going to be a bigot to them. They find it in everything. So we have to eradicate that. And if you look at it, racism is a disease, for example. They want it listed as a disease that has to be eradicated. In the social gospel movement, they would say, say, say the same thing about alcohol or uh, drugs eventually. I mean, these are things that were diseases that had to be eradicated. And to do so required government action. So you look at what's happening with wokeism. You, got, you have these diseases around. You have these people that are diseased. They have a fundamental problem. They have to be re-educated. They have to be taken down. Everything has to change. So Lynn continues, with the exceptions of Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson, every American president between 1861 and 18, I'm sorry, 1933 was a Republican mainline Protestant from the North or Midwest. The Republican Party, still the Lincoln Coalition of Northern Industrialists and Yankee Protestants, dominated Congress in the same era. Now, the Lincoln Coalition, not just of Northern Industrialists and Yankee Protestants, certainly that was there, but you had to throw in, in 1860, the Western farmers, who believed, who believed that by voting for Lincoln, they were keeping a real threat to their hegemony in the West, which was black Americans, out. They believed it. And of course, they were farmers. And so this is where you see the populist break in the, in the late 19th century, when these people decide that, ooh, this northern industrialist coalition we formed, not a good thing. we got to get out of that because it's causing problems for us now. Industry and finance were in the hands of a small member, a number of northeastern financiers, many of them old-stock northern Protestants like J.P. Morgan. While there were some important Jewish financiers, Jews along with Catholics were kept out of many snobbish Wall Street firms until well after World War II. The New Deal revolution of the 1930s is badly misunderstood both politically and culturally when it is treated as a left-wing rebellion against right-wing capitalism. I agree with that. I think that the whole entire process in the early 20th century of the economic side of progressivism, when you look at what's happening there, I think he's right. It was a rebellion not against capitalism, but against northern industrialists. And it's very easy to show this. And I've talked about it before. If you go back or get my Southern Scribblings, I, I mention it there in that book. But if you go back, there's a couple of lectures I have on YouTube about this. You go back and look at this New South attack on uh, northern industrialism, or if you look at what's happening with people like Henry de Lamar Clayton, the Clayton Antitrust Act, Oscar Underwood, the Underwood Tariff, which included an income tax. If you look at Glass-Steagall, Carter Glass and Henry Steagall, right? Glass from Virginia, Steagall from Alabama. If you look at those particular bills, those laws. Henry Dillamar Clayton is from Alabama. If you look at what's happening there, you see that this was not an attack on capitalism or markets or commerce. It was Southerners trying to use the apparatus they had been given to get back at the northern industrialists who created it, and they want a bigger slice of the pie. That's it. 
They wanted aid to farmers, which you got during the Wilson administration. When William McKinley is elected president in 1896, he, he does a southern tour, and he promises that the general government will be kind to the South. You see, all they wanted really was another seat at the table. This is why when you get to the World War I period, and even the Spanish-American War, it's viewed as a war of reunification. We're back. Spanish-American War more than World War I. But we're back. We're together again. This is great. So he says, fundamentally, it represented the partial overthrow of Yankee Protestant hegemony in American society by a coalition of outsiders, chiefly provincial Southern and Western whites and European-American immigrants in the North, many of them Catholic. Again, very true uh, in a way. You look at how Southerners rallied around the New Deal, and they loved it. Of course, some were concerned about the racial side of it. Theodore Bilbo, he was a race baiter from Mississippi, saying the only problem with it is it allowed blacks to receive money. I mean, so you still had that. The Democratic Party that dominated the United States between the 1930s and the 1980s had a few Yankee progressive members, but it was essentially the old Jacksonian alliance of white Southerners and non-British white ethnics in the North. If Harry Truman is understood correctly as a cultural Southerner from Missouri, then with one exception, every Democratic president between Roosevelt and Obama was a white Southerner, Truman, Johnson, Carter, and Clinton. The one exception was John F. Kennedy from the other wing of the Jacksonian anti-Yankee alliance of Southerners and Irish Americans. Meanwhile, the solid South combined with the seniority system ensured that Southerners, many of them segregationists, dominated Congress and the Senate throughout the New Deal era. The South did dominate the government, and you look at what they did, and this is where you get modern progressives, and wrestling with this. You have, uh, and I see it all the time. Wow, I mean, these Southerners are so good. Sam Irvin, I'll, I always use Sam Irvin as an example here. Sam Irvin was the darling of the left in the 1970s because he was sticking it to Richard Nixon. But yet here's the same Sam Irvin. Sam Irvin was consistent. He was always interested in reining in centralized power. And he said it, I mean, the, the, the opposition to civil rights legislation at times was, to him, based on a real understanding of the Constitution. You can't do these things because they're unconstitutional. Same thing with claiming executive privilege, which he said didn't exist. So you have all these progressives saying, gosh, you know, I love Carter Glass. I love Glass-Steagall. But these people were, I mean, they don't fit the woke agenda. So you're having this real internal strife within the progressives. And I think when you saw Joe Biden criticized on the campaign trail uh, by Kamala Harris and others, I mean, what they're doing there is trying to kind of purge that old part, but they can't necessarily purge it yet because these people still vote. There's still people around there that, that are kind of these old New Deal Democrats, and, and they, they still need to be, we're still trying to appeal. This It's when Howard Dean said at one point, I want to be the guy, the Democrat that gets the guy that has the Confederate flag sticker in his pickup truck. I want to be that guy. Now, of course, you can't say that anymore if you're a Democrat. But there are still these people out there that believe in blue-collar white Americans that they want to bring into the fold. These are the people Trump captured from the Democrats in 2016. It's the people that Hillary Clinton couldn't capture. Joe Biden was able to do it. Of course, I think there's some buyer's remorse in this. Joe Biden was able to do it for some of them. But what happens if it's Kamala Harris? Are they going to be able to capture that group? And I don't think they're going to. 
I think Kamala Harris is going to show the Democrats that in order to win, you're still going to have to capture that group of people. Because even if they're not the majority anymore, they're an important voting block, and that voting block, the blue-collar white American, is going to be the key to swinging elections from this point forward. It's going to be that minority group that you've got to win to win elections. You've got to win it. I think, I think it's very clear. This is what Pat Cadell was able to point out with Donald Trump in 2016. Pat Cadell's now dead. But you got to win that block to win the elections. And that means the Rust Belt. That means the South, of course. But more importantly, the Midwest. You see, these people don't fit that establishment America. They're, they're the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton called them. Joe Biden's able to kind of, well, I'm just like you. I'm from a steel town, and I'm gonna, even though he doesn't govern that way, he doesn't govern as a populist. He tried to appeal to that. So Lynn continues, Most New Deal Democratic politicians were not anti-capitalist or opposed to industry. They often represented socially conservative local business elites who resented the fact that northern bankers would often only finance infrastructure projects in the South and West that locked those regions into their assigned roles as resource colonies for factories in the Midwest and Northeast. So, a key, right? They don't like the northern-dominated industrial capitalist society. This goes back to the, to the post, early post-bellum period when Southerners were railing against this stuff. And then they have the reins of government. They're able to break that up. To break this neocolonial pattern of Northeastern economic domination, the New Deal Democrats used federal state capitalism to industrialize and modernize the southern and western periphery by means of rural electrification cooperatives, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and other hydropower projects, defense production plants assigned to the south and west during World War II, and the interstate highway system, a favorite project of FDR which was only enacted under Eisenhower. In short, southern and western politicians and their northern white ethnic allies who dominated the federal government in the New Deal era, deployed federal state capitalism to do an end-around unsympathetic Yankee capitalist, not to advance towards socialism or social democracy. I mean, I agree. They weren't interested in anything else. Look, and Roosevelt recognized he needed the South. This is why he signed off on a monument to Thomas Jefferson. There were a lot of Northerners who didn't want that. They didn't like Thomas Jefferson. But Roosevelt signs off on it. Roosevelt's spending a lot of time in Pine Mountain, Georgia. He loved that part of Georgia. You've got FDR State Park in Pine Mountain, Georgia. He's good friends with the Callaway family, which is, if you're a golfer, it's Callaway Golf. Uh, that's the Callaway family. There used to be, they're at Callaway Gardens. They used to have a, a professional golf tour there. But you've got Callaway Gardens. You've got LaGrange, which has got the Callaway family. I mean, these were important people in Georgia, but not just that. They were important advisors, you know, not official, but offhanded to the Roosevelts. Roosevelt dies in Pine Mountain, Georgia in 1945. He loved it in the South. And he tried to bring these people in. The New Deal era also witnessed the downfall of the post-Civil War New England Midwestern hegemony in American literature and culture. Following World War I, advanced intellectuals ridiculed the Puritan tradition in New England and its offshoot, the Upper Midwest, home of Sinclair Lewis's Bobbitt and Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. As 
Kenneth Rexroth notes in American Poetry in the 20th Century, after World War II, Southern writers and professors of literature like Robert Penn Warren and Cleanth Brooks infiltrated Ivy League literature departments, which Jewish Americans were also beginning to break into. Right, you had the Southern literary renaissance. I mean, this is Hemingway. I'm sorry, this is uh, Faulkner, not Hemingway. This is Faulkner. Hemingway's on the brain right now because he's very popular. This is Faulkner. This is the agrarians, the Nashville agrarians. This was happening. Robert Penn Warren, the only man who's won the Pulitzer for literature and poetry. This was happening on a large scale. Even Robert Lee Frost, the poet laureate of America, named after Robert E. Lee, loved the South, right? And he Now, these people did like New England, too, but they loved the South and the South. Eudora Welty, the South had something to offer. The Southerners had in the days of humanist controversy in the 1920s and 30s staked out a number of influential book-reviewing re- claims. It could be explained that humanism was a drive on the part of conservative and academic critics under the leadership of Irving Babbitt, teacher of French at Harvard, and disciple of Maras to capture book-reviewing jobs from the followers of H.L. Mencken and the Midwesterners. As years went by, they formed an alliance with the ex-communist militant anti-Stalinists. Now, H.L. Mencken is an interesting guy because he, while he was critical of the uncouth part of the South, he loved old Southern aristocracy, interestingly enough. But certainly, you had this shift in culture, and the South became an interesting place. The post-war literary world underwent an ethnic succession in which many white Southerners, including Willie Morris, Tom Wolfe, William Styron, Gore Vidal, and Truman Capote, together with Jewish writers and intellectuals like Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, and many other shouldered aside Northeastern WASP professors and novelists and purged the American literary canon of New Englanders like Longfellow, uh, Whittier, and the Fireside Poets. The poet Robert Lowell was one of the few Mayflower types of of his generation in the post-1945 American literary intelligentsia, and he was a protege of Southern poet Alan Tate. Right, so the Southerners, it's seen, at least in ter- to Lynn, were dominating. So you had a Southern cultural renaissance, and that then manifested itself politically. Meanwhile, another faction loosely affiliated with the New Deal Democrats tried to break the control of rich Northeasterners over the fine arts. Holger Cahill, an Icelandic immigrant who headed the Federal Art Project of the Works Progress Administration during the New Deal, was inspired by the revolutionary Mexican muralist movement to subsidize murals showing local history or themes in federal courthouses in the South and West. Just as the New Deal tried to decentralize political and economic power away from the Northeast, so it repudiated the idea that the fine arts were luxury goods produced for rich snobs by a few galleries in New York and Boston. Robert L. Dorman's study of New Deal art is entitled Revolt of the Provinces, the Regionalist Movement in America. And this is, you know, uh, wood... Grant Wood, you know, the American Gothic. But certainly this decentralization, though you're seeing a lot of centralization with the New Deal in the arts, you're seeing a little more diversity in it. So he's saying there's centralization, but there's also decentralization. Again, the South kind of leading the way here. Driven from the White House for half a century after 1932, marginalized in Congress and circumvented by federal state capitalism, the northern mainline Protestant elite managed to preserve its dominance in three areas. The deep state, the major nonprofit foundations, and the elite prep schools and universities. 
In the movie The Good Shepherd, Joe Pesci's mafioso says to Matt Damon's WASP CIA agent, You know we Italians have our families in the church. The Irish have the homeland. The Jews their tradition. The blacks their music. What do you guys have? Damon's character replies, We have the United States of America. The rest of you are just visiting. Well, we saw this. I mean, the deplorables with Trump were in, and what happened? The deep state got to work and got rid of them. And who's ahead of this? I've talked about this before, and I looked at it. You know, who is really buying into critical race theory? Well, it's white northerners, elite white northerners in prep schools and universities. That's who's buying into this stuff. And he points it out here. Nonprofit foundations. You look at the Rock, the Rockefeller Institute and Carnegie. I mean, you look at all these groups that were founded by these rich industrialists, these rich philanthropists, and it's these nonprofits, even now corporations, which are driving some of this stuff as well. In addition to the deep state, other national institutions that the Neo Jacksonians of the New Deal Coalition never conquered. And the revolution against Yankeedom include the major nonprofit foundations like Ford and Rockefeller and the Ivy League universities. The culture of what be, might be called the NGO academic spook complex remained deeply rooted in the social gospel wing of northern mainline Protestantism of the early 1900s. The social gospel progressivism these institutions have long embraced is a Janus faced tradition. One face is technocratic, holding that social and global conflicts, rather than reflecting the tragic nature of human existence, are problems which can be solved by nonpartisan experts guided by something called social science. Well, this is true. I mean, this is, this is the new world order. This is what they want to do. The other face of social gospelism is irrational and rooted in post-millennial Protestant theology, convinced that we are on the verge of a world peace and prosperity if only wicked people at home and wicked regions abroad can be crushed once and for all. The good guy, bad guy myth. And I think that Lind... What's interesting about this is Lynn certainly still believes some of this in his work on Abraham Lincoln. There's a good guy, Lincoln, and there's a bad guy, these other things. This is interesting he's actually writing this. Maybe he's had an epiphany and he's figured out, ooh, there's something bigger here. This mentality with this bizarre synthesis of science-inspired technocracy and millenarian zeal was shared by many turn-of-the-century progressives, including Woodrow Wilson, a southern-born northern transplant. As Dorothy Ross pointed out, points out excuse me, in The Origins of American Social Science, Wilson, like many leading American progressives, was the child of a mainline Protestant minister. Shedding its specifically northern mainline Protestant culture attributes, a version of social gospel Protestantism has mutated into the secular religion of wokeness, the orthodoxy of the universities and the increasingly important nonprofit sector. Its converts include many of the affluent white secular children and grandchildren of members of mainline Protestant denominations, like the Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Methodists, who are hemorrhaging membership to the category of religious nuns. N-O-N-E-S, right? Nuns. They're no religion. By evolving from an ethno-regional culture into a crusading secular creed disseminated by the universities, the public school system, the corporate media, and corporate HR departments, Post-Protestant wokeness is capable of assimilating anyone of any race or ethnicity, native-born or immigrant, who is willing to conform to its weird rituals and snobbish etiquette. This is true. I mean, this is what's happening. I think he pointed out the real issue going on here. It's Yankees. That's why he calls this the revenge of the Yankees. It's Yankeeism. 
The Long Island lockjaw accent has been replaced by the constantly updated woke dialect of the emerging American elite as a status marker. You may have an Asian or Spanish surname, but if you know what non-binary means and say Latinx, then you are potentially eligible for membership in the new national ruling class. The recent conversion to wokeness of the legendary media, I'm sorry, the legacy media and big business can be attributed to the increasing reliance of both sectors on a few prestige universities to recruit their top staff. In living, in living memory, if you wanted a job in a prestigious law firm or company in Dallas or Atlanta, you would do well to attend the local, state, or elite private university to make connections with the offspring of the local gentry. Being an Ivy League graduate, far from being a plus, might, be, might well be held against you. The nationalization and globalization of American business, however, has produced a new increasingly homogenous managerial elite filtered through a small number of Ivy League schools and high-status public universities which serve as finishing schools for the woke overclass. 100% true. This is the top-down, one-size-fits-all America of the Lincolnian design. Again, this is where these neoconservatives don't necessarily get it all the time when you talk about the Claremont people and others. They don't get that what they're doing by advancing Lincoln is actually creating the environment for all this stuff to happen. It's nationalism as well. And the Yankees were always interested in their brand of nationalism, which really was their brand of dominance. Although the woke managerial culture in the United States has lost most of the vestiges of its Yankee mainline Protestant origins, the emerging American national oligarchy has the same enemies as the old New England Midwestern wasp oligarchy, white Southerners, Catholic white ethnics, and observant Jews. This became clear in the summer of 2020. The woke left not only demanded the removal of statues of Confederate traitors, a perfectly reasonable demand. You see, this is where Lind is a dupe. He's a moron. It's not a perfectly reasonable demand. It's stupid. Well, we could say that we need to take care of these Confederate traitors, but these people had the gall to target Columbus, Spanish Catholic saints and conquistadors. You see, they had the gall to say that. Even going after Abraham Lincoln, how dare they? There's no perfectly reasonable demand to take down Confederate statues. None. No. Shut up. So I would say to Michael Lind, no, shut up. You're stupid. Democratic liberals warned the tones of 19th century Yankee Protestant nativists that papists were taking over the Supreme Court. At the same time, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a mayor of Bill de Blasio, Italian-American by ancestry but woke by culture, exhibited a striking double standard when it came to public gatherings by left-wing pro- protesters on the one hand and the other, Orthodox and Orthodox Jews, Hasiatic Jews. The increasingly powerful and intolerant woke national overclass justifies its cultural iconoclasm in the name of oppressed minorities. But this is just an excuse for a top-down program for cultural imperialism by mostly white, affluent, college-educated managers and professionals and rentiers. Woke attitudes are much less common among black Americans and Hispanic Americans than among the white college-educated elite. This is 100% true. But again, Lynn is creating his own nightmare by advocating even the line, a perfectly reasonable demand. No, there's no reasonable demand about it. It needs to go away. If you say anything of this this is reasonable, it's not. It's destructive, and it's Yankee, and it's horrible. What we are witnessing is a power grab carried out chiefly by some white Americans against other white Americans. That's 100% true. 
The goal of the new woke national establishment, the success of the old North Northeastern mainline Protestant establishment that was temporarily displaced by the Neo-Jacksonian New Deal Democratic Coalition, is to stigmatize, humiliate, and disempower recalcitrant Southern Catholic and Jewish whites, along with members of ethnic and racial minorities, who refuse to be assimilated into the new national orthodoxy disseminated from New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and the prestigious private universities of New England. Properly understood, the Great Awakening is the revenge of the Yankees. Well, that's 100% true, the last line. So if you know that, then why would you even get on board with any of this? Well, because you have to if you believe in St. Abraham Lincoln. But St. Abraham Lincoln is behind everything we're seeing in America today. So I like this piece, but again, it's just like people like Michael Anton. They don't see how their, how their proposition nation nonsense, how their belief in this fairy tale of the founding and, of course, the Lincolnian myth, how all of that is contributing to everything we're seeing from Yankeedom. Those are the Yankees. If you don't like it, then don't create fairy tales around these morons. So we're going to talk more about this because I've got three pieces dealing with this this week in some way or another. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.